1939, you have two of the most important physicists working in this area, Einstein and Szilard, who coined a letter to Roosevelt saying, listen, there's this thing called nuclear fission, and you, everybody's talking about its peaceful applications, but you know, if you do it right, you might be able to create this incredibly destructive weapon. And I'm paraphrasing the letter, but it got the attention of Roosevelt, and we know everything went dark, understandably, because, you know, you don't want to publish something that the enemy could use. And what I want to do is start asking the important questions before rather than after, you know, quantum goes online. We saw that with the nuclear arms race. And so we're trying to ask the big questions first. How do you develop norms, possibly even ethical guidelines, when quantum does go online? Welcome to the first Big Tech Podcast of 2020. Happy New Year, Taylor. Happy New Year, David. On this episode of the Big Tech Podcast, we're diving into the quantum realm. And not the science fiction movie kind of quantum realm, right? But it's so tempting to imagine the science fiction part of quantum realm. We're talking about quantum technologies, like quantum computing and communications. So when we say quantum, what we're really talking about is quantum theory, which has been around for over 100 years. Quantum technology is the application of this quantum theory to transform computing and communications. Da, 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 da. You've entered the twilight zone. <laughs> I think we need to step back, Taylor. Stop right there and get to the basics. What is quantum technology or quantum computing? Absolutely. It's a complicated topic to grasp. And I think you actually ultimately need to be a quantum physicist to really get it. So we asked Dr. Shohini Ghosh, professor of physics and computer science at Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Canada. Here's how she describes quantum computing. Well, when describing quantum computing, it's useful to start with the example of flipping a coin. The result is either heads or tails, precise values. Or, as we say in computer language, one or zero. Because traditional computers work on electrical currents and voltages, it's either on or off, one or zero. Quantum computing works in a completely different way. It is based on quantum physics and the realization that a quantum particle can be described in a fluid state. We call it superposition. Not just a one or a zero, but a combination of probabilities of being one or zero. So a quantum computer works not by switching voltages between one and zero, electrical currents on and off or anything like that, but by manipulating all the possible states of a quantum particle. In the end, a quantum computer can still tell you if the result is heads or tails, but it's the process in the middle where a quantum computer can harness superposition and probabilities to compute more efficiently or do tasks that cannot even be done with traditional methods. So it's not about building faster computers. Like everything quantum, it turns out the answer can be yes and no. Um, traditional computers will still be faster at doing things like rendering video graphics and surfing the internet. Where quantum technology really shines, though, is in research modeling, like chemistry, meteorology, or security encryption. So this naturally leads down the path of, of fear and doomsday scenarios. Can quantum computing be used to stage cyber attacks on, I guess, what you'd call traditional computers? Technically, yes, absolutely. But it can also be used to protect data from those very hackers. I asked Dr. Ghosh about this. So without getting too technical for your listeners, the idea here is that we can use quantum particles, which in that superposition state are not limited to just one and zero, to hide information from hackers and hence create unhackable security keys. 
a hacker would literally need to break the laws of quantum physics to hack the key. An example is that banks can use these keys to secure transactions, but beyond security keys, are there other applications for communications? Yes, we can also think about using quantum entanglement, which is a powerful connection that can exist between two or more interacting quantum particles. Perhaps we can build an entangled quantum internet in the future for different communication tasks and even perhaps for teleporting quantum information. This is all so fascinating, albeit a bit difficult to wrap my head around, but this is clearly going to impact technology in the future. Not just technology, it'll have ripple effects throughout our societies. And that's what we'll get into with our guest, Professor James Dodarian. James is the Michael Hines Chair of International Security Studies and Director of the Center for International Security Studies at the University of Sydney in Australia. It's a long title for a very, very smart man. James joins us from Sydney. Hello. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. Glad to have you on the show, James. So we started off with a primer on the basics of quantum technology from Dr. Shohini Ghosh, but I'm curious to get your take on how you describe quantum to someone. Well, usually when someone you know, goes down the rabbit hole, they always start with the famous quote. There's a variety of them out there. Niels Bohr is sort of the father of you know, quantum mechanics, one of them. Uh, famously said, if you think you know quantum mechanics, then you don't. I mean, it's, it's weird uh, because it's often seemingly... Uh, nonsensical. But it makes sense. It's the most tested theory now in physics and um, both in the lab and through all kinds of measurements uh, in the real world that's been proven over and over again. So what's changed is it's moving out of the realm of the very, very small into um, the bigger world of quantum technology. Uh, Quantum explains Um, behavior at the atomic and subatomic level, but now we're starting to find evidence that uh, there's quantum effects at the molecular and even higher level, and it's being harnessed now for perhaps a big step change. Uh, The big step change is going to be mainly in uh, quantum communication, uh, quantum computers, and quantum sensors, and, you know, it's sort of like that moment in Ant-Man. You put quantum in front of anything, and suddenly it becomes magical. And I'm starting to regret not watching all those Marvel films now. I'd say my understanding is that it all seems magical to me. But to move past the magical stage, what will be the next important step in its development? Quantum advantage, I think, is the next step where you'll be able to actually tap you know, some of these incredible advantages in optimization calculations, in you know, development of drugs. The modeling and simulation by quantum computers is going to be superior to classical computers. You'll be able to do it through the cloud. I mean, IBM even you know, has made its very basic quantum computer from when it was five qubits now to 15 qubits available through the cloud. Right, so that will be the model going forward. Is We're, we're not going to have quantum computers on our desks. We'll just have access to quantum capacity through the devices we have now, I assume. Um, so if that's the case, walk us through some of the the uses of this technology. You mentioned in the production of drugs. Where, how does quantum capacity fit into that? Yeah, well, I'm not talking about designer drugs. I don't want to get everybody all excited about this. We're, we're talking about pharmaceuticals here that are you know, going to help save lives. Um, one of the big investments in any drug, as you know, that's breakthrough drugs is, you know, testing and modeling and, and then 
application. And the thing is when you can simulate at the molecular level, it means you can construct these drugs and then also test their efficacy for you know, curing the disease, but also potential side effects. And that's going to shrink the whole you know, development time for getting drugs out. And what else could quantum technology do for us? Well, when, when we talk about quantum advantage, what does it do better than classical computers? I mentioned modeling and simulation, which is so important for you know, material science. You could create you know, super strong materials by basically rearranging at the atomic level the periodic table. It's, it's also for creating these strong materials, but also that would be you know, a way of creating less expensive materials. One is lithium batteries or just wholly new batteries that will be much more efficient. Modeling climate change is very important, not only for like convincing the skeptics, but for offsetting you know, particular anomalies. I think, you know, for me, the, one of the reasons I, I got interested in it is that it's probably, um, you know, one of the things that people don't understand is that before governments do anything, they model it, they simulate it. And I've always been intrigued by how models or simulations can produce new realities. Everybody thinks that modeling are just representing a potential reality or an existing reality. But something that, you know, everyone from Borges, the great Argentinian novelist, to um, Baudrillard have shown us that, you know, the model, when it reaches certain levels of perfection, can, you know, start to proceed and engender realities. Um, particularly if those realities are more appealing, you know, when the map becomes more appealing than the landscape. So, you know, I'm interested in more of that sort of philosophical question of, you know, when you develop almost a fidelity between the, the model and the reality, what happens? Then we start to get into, you know, matrix-like areas of exploration. Yeah, I find this um, idea and this concept totally fascinating that um, we will be able to model and simulate um, various versions of reality and then create futures based on, on these models. I think that's, that's a pretty astounding concept and, and implication that is, in many ways, grounded in epistemology, right? There's a philosophic question of how are we modeling and building reality um, based on these kinds of simulation. But I'm wondering if this kind of modeling is already being done and what it's being used for. I guess the more real-world applications, you know, you have to look at who's buying what right now in terms of quantum technologies, the potential quantum technologies? Why is Amazon buying, you know, a lot of this technology and investing in the production of it? And part of that is optimization, the so-called traveling salesman problem. Like if you're trying to get from one side of the United States to the other, but you have like 12 stops, what's the optimal way to make that trip? And that's an incredibly difficult problem, actually. And uh, quantum computers are very good at that, a polynomial calculations necessary to figure that out. And that's going to increase efficiencies. Yes, but I mean, where does it all end? Uh, can we get exponentially efficient? We're basically hitting the ceiling of Moore's law. We've all seen this incredible, you know, exponential growth every two years in quantum speeds, number of transistors that you can get onto a, you know, a chip. And um, we're bumping up against the miniaturization that's possible uh, you know, how many millions, billions, you know, transistors can you put onto one of these chips? Well, you you get down to the nano level, nanometer level, and quantum effects start to kick in, and Moore's law 
stops. You know, it's not, I know it's not a law, it's an axiom, but nonetheless, it's, it's the case that we all know that a, lot, a big chunk of the GDP of advanced countries is dependent upon that increase. Productivity will start to flatten out. So this is why I think a lot of people are investing in quantum now, because they think this is a way to redefine Moore's law, defy it even. So in some ways, you can say the future of uh, capitalist growth is dependent upon this, which some people would say it's a good thing, a bad thing. That's an idea worth running through for a minute. I mean, there's a fascinating connection between capitalist need for growth and Moore's law and sort of the exponential growth and evolution of technology. And if you're saying that breaks and the only people who have access to that increased computational capacity would be those who have access to quantum capacity, what does that tell us about how politics is going to play out in this space? Is this going to happen suddenly? Are we going to see some sort of increased divide between those who have access to quantum capacity and all the growth that comes with? And the rest, walk us through some of the, the political economic implications of this. I part ways with some people who see this all as linear or even exponential. I think we have to sort of work out a new cosmology for understanding some of these changes and also a new politics. When you're dealing with something that's basically going to be a permanent revolution, you know, it's not going to be one staged development. It's going to be a lot of people are being left behind, a lot of people are leaving forward. It's going to cut across levels of nation states, levels of class. And when you have a permanent revolution, you know, this one thing I think Trotsky was right about, it, it does come with a particular politics. You can leap over stages of development in your politics. And so we might be, you know, ushering in something new in terms of, you know, everybody likes to link, for instance, you know, liberal democracies to a particular form of interdependence and capitalism and trade. And well, what would, you know, if we could talk about a quantum, you know, form of economics, what, what would be the politics that correspond to that? And I'm not trying to be deterministic here. I don't think it should be just like, you know, one to one. But um, so there's all these knock on ripple effects that no one's really investigating um, that I think it's about time because we're kind of stuck in this Newtonian cosmology. We still see it ourselves and states as billiard balls knocking against each other. Well, we're much more like those, you know, wave particles that are decohering and wave slash particles that are, you know, collapsing and then reforming with every choice and every observation and every measurement. <laughs> the, Sorry, was that too much? <laughs> Sorry. No, that was, that was great. I was just trying to choose my <laughs> way of engaging with that. Uh, I just love just to pause how you, uh, you bounce between the theoretical and the practical. Um, well, that's uh, part of the issue. And that's what's so fascinating about this concept, right? Is it feels like there's this theoretical and metaphorical utility of the concept that sits alongside these hard real world practicalities. That's very important because like a lot of physicists who will will say, oh, uh, we don't have to pay attention to the theoretical, well, meaning the non-mathematical theories because, you know, their view is to shut up and calculate. We know this stuff works. Let's not worry about the other kind of ontological philosophical conundrum that are posed by the uncertainty principle by superposition, spooky action at a distance, um, these things that just don't correspond to common sense, common sense being Newtonian common sense. But my, my point, and this is one that's being raised by in philosophy departments um, increasingly, like at San Diego, Oxford, New York University, and 
um, elsewhere is that, you know, if do we really have to start to rethink our, our, our cosmologies, our worldviews in light of quantum mechanics, but also when it, it basically makes this leap from the very, very small to the very, very big, and you see a convergence happening. So there's some really exciting work being done by philosophers in this area that, um, you know, some people think it's a little too woo-woo, too, too far out there, but um, there's a lot of rigor being applied to it there. I'd like to talk about what led you to moving into the philosophical side of quantum. Well, I, I guess the if there was an er moment to it, it was um, I was actually at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton when we were there was a group of us who were supposed to be doing stuff on implications of information technology for society. It was like you know one of these big mega projects that they put together. It was two thousand. It's before actually nine eleven. Come to think of it. But while I was there, a, a lot of the stuff, um, the breakthroughs about, you know, the theoretical breakthroughs about quantum and potential applications computing were just sort of filtering through, you know, but through Prescott, but Peter Shore and, um, and others. And I sort of played hooky from my project and attended some of these seminars. And it piqued my interest. And I started thinking about what would be the geostrategic implications of this. And, and, um, right. And that is why you started Project Q? So we, we started um, Project Q um, after, just shortly after I arrived at Sydney. One of the reasons I took the job here is because um, Australia, but in particular Sydney, is really leading the way in a lot of the research. They have three centers of excellence funded by um, government, but also um, there's some corporate subventions and um, even, <laughs> interestingly enough, some U.S. Uh, intelligence and military um, support for the various quantum research labs here. And what I want to do is, you know, gather these people and say, you know, why don't we start asking the important questions before rather than after, you know, quantum goes online. And for me, the, um, you know, analog, the historical analog was, you know, 1939. You know, you have basically two of the most important physicists working in this area. One of them skeptical, but the other very much immersed in it was uh, Einstein and Szilard, the Hungarian um, refugee, who coined a letter um, to Roosevelt saying, listen, there's this thing called nuclear fission, and you, everybody's talking about its peaceful applications, but you know, if you do it right, you might be able to create this incredibly destructive weapon. And I'm paraphrasing the letter, but um, it got the attention of Roosevelt, and we know after that, Manhattan Project, Los Alamos, the dropping of two nuclear devices on Japanese cities. So the question is, you know, where are we now? Are we in, you know, what are the positive uh, potentialities and what are the, you know, really possible accidents or even intended consequences once corporations and militaries get um, so invested in this technology and get so much into the race, you know, the whole idea of an escalatory, um, you know, race where you have to maintain an advantage over, you know, your opponent. So with Project Q, you are a part of this race. You are creating knowledge and communities and guidance for political leaders on how and scientists, how they should engage in this space. You're, you're along for the ride. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why we started Project Q as well, is sort of to say, yeah, let's have a race. Let's have a research race. Let's make it collaborative. And we always invite, for instance, the Chinese quantum physicists to our Project Q events. And vice versa, I've gone to the big complex outside Shanghai as a guest and as our documentary, um, which is about the quantum race, is looking at is 
how do you, I don't know, forestall that turning into an arms race? And I don't know if it's possible, but we're certainly giving a shot in that, you know, we have people talking together, you know, better jaw-jaw than war war who, who, who can influence their um, respective decision-making bodies, particularly in China where, you know, it's more seamless, the relationship between the corporate, the military. And, uh, you know, it's also true in the United States where DARPA and IARPA, the intelligence equivalent of the Defense Advanced Research Project, have invested a lot. And my, you know, my worry is that, you know, all this is being done relatively open now at, on college campuses, but what happens if they make the breakthrough? Um, do those labs go dark? Do they have non-disclosure, you know, agreements about this? So, James, does going dark mean that one of those powers has figured out how to weaponize quantum and we're headed for conflict? You know, this is the metaphor that came out of a few paragraphs in, a, you know, 800-page book, you know, the Peloponnesian Wars by Thucydides, about the wars in 400 BC between Athens, Spartan, and, and, you know, to take something from then and believe that it's inevitable that the United States as a declining power will go to war with a rising power, China, and then factor in quantum as, you know, one of the reasons why the U.S. government and also, you know, intelligence agencies have to make sure that they have quantum supremacy in another sense, you know, in, in the who gets to weaponize this first. Not all arms races lead to war, but it'd be nice if the quantum race did not. How big is China's bet on this? Uh, <laughs> that's a figure that you'll see wide fluctuations. I mean, people in the think tanks, you know, have hard figures, but, you know, you know, I respect, you know, we invite the people from the think tanks to come to our events, but, you know, think tanks are dependent upon hyping, I think, the, the, um, the threat and the investment. You, know, you can't translate, you know, a 10 billion, 30 billion, you see these figures thrown around, um, as all leading to weapons. I mean, but it is the case, and, and some of the people we've had at Project Q have been quite open in their presentations. If you go to our site, a little bit of a, uh, product placement here, projectqsydney.com, you can see some of the interviews um, where they'll talk about these issues quite openly. Uh, well, I shouldn't say quite openly because when I went to China to visit some of them, you see how important, for instance, quantum communications is for them. And, you know, when the NSA puts a lot of money into this, as we found out from Snowden's leak, I mean, it's, you know, at the one project that uh, the NSA was doing called Hard Penetrating Targets. I don't know who names this stuff, but... Jesus Christ. Yeah. yeah. Uh, hard... I think that's it. Hard Penetrating Targets. Um, this is the... Uh, yeah, we could do a little gendered analysis of that one. No kidding. It is the case where they're actually not... In this particular project, they have other quantum projects. They're looking at how universities are advancing in, in their research... There, we're really interested in encryption and, and, um, and some, you know, Chao Yang Lu and uh, his mentor who is leading the quantum effort in China, Pan Wei, he, he says we were, you know, we were heavily um, influenced by that NSA leak um, in trying to develop totally encrypted, non-breakable communication capabilities. And then they put up the first quantum satellite. Uh, so the China did get the jump in that regard. Do you think 
NSA and their equivalents in China and everywhere else are working on post-quantum encryption, you can be sure. You know, it's, that's a race that's going on in the shadows. If I were writing a science fiction film and came to you and said, what will the world look like? What will the military look like in 20 years? And what examples of quantum technology in use would I see? Uh, do you have any that you could imagine at this point? Well, you'll have to talk to my agent. You know, I, I know of course, I'm writing that script. <laughs> uh, I can give you the bare bones. I mean, I'm not the only one, you know, uh, doing a little speculative work in this area. I, the Washington foreign correspondent, um, David Ignatius, has written a pretty decent novel about this, actually titled Quantum Spy. And David, and I hope you're going to thank me for that product placement. He uh, He's looking at the China-U.S. race. And I actually think, you know, science fiction is ahead of the game Some in giving us uh, a taste of what's to come. I think Kim Stanley Robinson gets it pretty close to right uh, in Red Moon, where you see quantum artificial intelligence, quantum communications being used by all sides of a conflict, both between the United States and the U.S., but also within China as basically a revolution unfolds, a democratic revolution unfolds within China. And quantum technology plays a very important role. I'm not going to ruin it, but uh, for those who pick it up, um, great book on that. You're saying quantum artificial intelligence and quantum communication will likely be used in wars. How concerned should we be about that as we look ahead? Should we be very afraid? I think that, you know, I visit a lot of these labs, and it's interesting when I go to Google, Microsoft, or in China and Haifei and other places, they all have quantum artificial intelligence labs. Uh, NASA Ames has one. And uh, they're kind of, that's the, the sort of the inner sanctum. You know, that's where I think the most interesting and sometimes the most secretive work's being done, where what happens when you get to, when you apply, you know, some of these quantum algorithms and then the, when the quantum technology becomes available to artificial intelligence? Are we going to see something that's just a, a true breakthrough in the abilities to do machine learning um, and pattern recognition? And you can be sure all that stuff is going to be weaponized quickly, particularly with drone technologies. I'm more concerned about how it's going to create sensors that make it possible to see everything in real time. And what does that mean for stealth technologies? You know, what does that mean for your submarine deterrence in, in the nuclear triad? What does it mean for stealth fighters? It's going to be harder and harder, you know. I think it's what China's doing doing a lot of work in this area because it's going to be very hard to do that kind of in and out military interventions based on stealth technologies. That's going to be a potential game changer in the sort of strategic front. In the secret halls of the militaries uh, and companies, are there particular, you know, you, we've, we've talked about Google, we've talked a little bit about IBM and obviously the US and China. Are they really at the forefront of this? Are there other countries and other companies that are also working on this in the back rooms? I think anybody who's has uh, you know the aspiration, you'll see different scales of it. Um, India is a late comer to this. Interesting enough, Apple's not heavily invested as a corporation. They, I think they're following their pattern of letting everybody else put the big R and D money into it and then ripping it off afterwards. <laughs> I, I think and doing a better job of it. I, I think that. Um, well, when I mentioned permanent revolution, one of the key uh, ideas that economists and then 
the appropriation of this idea by Trotsky and others, is that it's often the unlikeliest candidates that sort of make the breakthroughs because they're not as invested in the old technologies. So, you know, there's no path dependencies. They're able to make these both, you know, technological but conceptual leaps. So who knows? Maybe it could be a country we're not really paying attention to. I think Australia, you know, everybody likes to talk about Australia punching above its weight. Well, it's absolutely true. It's, you know, a percentage of GDP per capita. There's all kinds of ways to measure this. They've invested more uh, government money, university money, private money. China's still leading the pack, um, both corporate in terms of, you know, Alibaba and all the other big tech firms. They're, they're working with the government. Um, the U.S. got late into the sort of governmental intervention, the you know, quantum um, initiative, I think it's like 1.2 billion, which is, you know, sounds big, but not nothing up to the Chinese level. Europe has come together, and, and certain nodes of the European collaboration in Delft and uh, in in Holland and and um, CERN and elsewhere. So I don't know. I think that we might just have our eye. You know, we might be as usual tunnel vision, looking at the big players when someone, maybe there's a Dr. No somewhere on an island in the Caribbean who's developing the perfect quantum weapon. I don't know. Yeah, you know, we laugh at that, but but that's one of the things I really came away from, from the Project Q workshop, was that there's these potential vast implications of these technologies with just huge financial and geopolitical upsides if they were to be realized. But I'm, I'm just not sure we're seeing visibly anyway, the corresponding investment. Either this promise is out of whack, right? Like there isn't as much potential upside and revolutionary implication in these technologies as is somehow ascribed to them. Or if there is, is there just a bunch of dark money and research happening that we don't see and doesn't get talked about? You know, I'm going to leave that to the conspiracy theorists who are going to be like, you know, making comments on my presentation here today. I'm, you know, I follow Walter Benjamin's line on this, that, you know, in times of terror when everything is a conspiracy, everyone must be a detective. I'm doing detective work on the assumption that there's always something hidden. Um, I've done work on, you know, basically the military industrial media entertainment network for 30, 20 odd years now. So, yeah, I... I think so, but the, the conspiracy theories are lazy, though. I mean, it's a lazy way of trying to say, oh, there's some wizard behind a curtain, you know, pulling the levers. It's not. It's, um, we like to think that someone's in control, but sometimes it's a, and it's assemblage, to use the Deleuzian concept of, you know, a lot of unintended act, actions coming out of multiple actors who aren't aware of what everybody else is doing, and then suddenly there's this, call it what you will, a quantitative shift, a qualitative shift from all the quantitative work going on. I, I kind of think we're, we're getting close to that. And, you know, it's when people talk about convergence of the biological and the physiological and the, the philosophical, I think, you know, quantum is going to be important to understand that and why we're doing kind of a massive educational program along with this in it. You know, we're trying to, all our deliverables involve, you know, uh, the, the multi-tiered. Some are going out to industry, some to governmental, but a big chunk of it, or of our investment in this, is going to a documentary that will be, you know, intelligible to the widest possible audience. And you don't want to scare the bejesus out of people, but we want to make them feel 
concerned enough that they'll get educated and be involved in, you know, hopefully some decisions being made about this. So on that, I, I spend a lot of my time and work thinking through and working on tech governance these days. Yeah. And it's remarkable, I think, in many areas of this conversation, just how out of step our institutions of governance are from the types of problems and challenges that we're seeing in the tech space that demand governance. And I think I think you see this on yeah. relatively simple issues like content moderation, like creating standards around AI. I mean, these are pretty simple problems compared to the types of issues that are raised potentially by quantum computing. So do you see that same disconnect in the quantum conversation? And uh, are, where are the governance conversations happening in this space? Well, that's why, you know, I rely on the Canadians. You, you're leading the way, right? You're going to show us how to do it. Yeah, we're in trouble then. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, uh, this is the closest moment I get to uh, despair is on this very idea of regulation I mean, um, or governance. The fact is that uh, the big players don't want it. It cuts into profits. You know, I think that data mining is incredibly profitable and, you know, this will be seen as another way to curtail Facebook or Amazon's or Google's ability to take that surplus that comes out of data mining and, and monetize it. There's going to be resistance at the, the, the level of um, big tech. I think they know there's a backlash coming. I think there's some honorable people who are trying to make a, a change and a difference. But, you know, when we talk about structural forces working against it, it might require that big accident to, you know, make people realize that, yeah, you, gotta, you have to be in control of this stuff or it controls you. Where will that push for regulation ultimately come from, do you think? I don't know. I'm really relying on, you know, creative thinkers. Like, I know what you guys are all doing up in Canada. I really mean it. I think it's like what Ron's doing, what you're attempting in, at McGill now and others. It's why I think the onus is on the universities, because it's not going to happen in think tanks. It's not going to happen in corporations. And I hate to say it, it's not going to happen in government. So, you know, it's going to have to be some sort of practicum that's generated out of the last quasi-autonomous institution we have, the university. Why does this push for regulation and foresight have to come from universities, do you think? The reason why I think there's a special responsibility for universities is because there's no one else stepping up right now. Governments have become, I think, understandably too much in crisis mode dealing with, you know, what's the latest breaking event that requires their attention. There are groups within defense departments or within intelligence agencies that are supposed to be doing these sort of global trends looking out over the next 15, 30 years. But they're really looking at the strategic implications. And I can tell a short anecdote. Um, I've actually been involved in the global trends exercise a long time ago with the CIA, what, what was going to happen in 2015. And they had assembled like some of the you know really good creative thinkers, I think, in, from think tanks and intelligence agencies, but they also brought in some, you know, <laughs> outliers like myself, and I think Bruce Sterling was there, or else he provided a scenario, the science fiction writer. And the interesting thing, this happened in 2000, and, and there was like 45, 60 of us broken up into groups, and no one presented a scenario of, you know, 18 guys getting on board civilian airliners with 
box cutters and taking down the Twin Towers and, you know, uh, doing great harm to the U.S. economy. Um, you know, with a $500,000 investment, they ended up having a trillion-dollar impact if you include the knock-on effects of the Iraq War and the ISIS and everything that followed. So, you know, th- there are limitations to the imaginary, particularly when you're in a structured setting like that. Universities have, I think, the, the, the luxury, uh, particularly when you're in interdisciplinary centers like what's going on at McGill, what's going on in you know, the Monk Center, what we're trying to achieve here at the Center for International Security Studies is to really sort of you know, try to look over the horizon, but to use history, to use you know, multiple disciplines, and not, use, not get stuck in that tunnel vision of how do we you know, mitigate or anticipate crisis. And, uh, you know, the other possible player, you know, corporations, they're understandably driven by uh, profit. Um, they're stakeholders, um, shareholders. They're not going to be too interested in looking at futures that don't correspond to that model. Finally, you know, think tanks. Some interesting work going on, but they tend to overhype sometimes the threats, particularly if it leads to more resources coming into the think tanks. So uh, that's why I think we fall back to the university as sort of the last, you know, I say I call it the quasi-autonomous because obviously there's all kinds of investments and constraints about what you can do and cannot do. But um, it's the best we've got right now and, and why um, I think that it's important to, you know, do this theory informed by practice and practice, you know, held uh, to account by theory that is the way forward on these these sort of questions about what's going to happen with new technologies. James, going back to your university, you're taking the Project Q workshops on tour again. You've also got your documentary coming out. What do you hope Project Q will achieve with these kinds of projects and outreach? World peace. Is that too high? Does it reach? <laughs> or? Uh, you know, um, I, I, I've been doing this for much longer than I thought I would do. I, I, I'm a bit of a dilettante, to tell you the truth. I, I, I pick up what I think to be like the big global danger or the global event that we're not paying attention to and flit around. And, but I got kind of, once I went down this rabbit hole, it really has affected my, my identity and my worldview. So I, I think I, I'm really in this for um, the duration. I think that this is uh, the long haul in the sense that we're not going to see, I think, some of these effects immediately. We're in a hype cycle, uh, like with all new technologies. We, people should be aware of that. And people are going to start to start to poo-poo the idea of quantum because it won't immediately deliver on you know, some of its hype and its promises. This is what happened with AI. And then suddenly, you know, parallel processing and machine learning and pattern recognition did lead to a big break, and we're not ready for it, uh, a new leap. So I... I I think you have to be careful about people getting jaded, but also people treating it as a fad. That's another way of keeping your distance from it. So we're trying to make it accessible at multiple levels, you know, entertaining, so people who want to get interested in it. And in a lot of ways, I think, you know, Hollywood's ahead of the zeitgeist. It's really hard not to see a, you know, any movie now that involves anything with sci-fi, where there's not something mentioned, you know, quantum gravity and interstellar, or quantum teleportation, quantum fluctuation, um, the whole idea of, you know, the quantum many worlds, you know, it's hard to see a TV series where that doesn't pop up even in spoiler alert 
uh, you know, Man in a High Castle. Um, this is really a case where I think there is something happening out there, but the kind of critical consciousness of it is lagging. And, you know, it's not just simply lagging behind the technological developments. It's lagging behind something that started back at the Solvay Conference in 1927 and onward um, that we, we need, I think, to get up to speed, as Virilia would want us to do, but also put in some circuit breakers. Because one thing is quantum and every, all these new technologies do is speed up the processing powers, but that means it also means humans seem relatively slow and uh, inferior. And when that happens, you know, then you start to lose control. Um, you know, humans out of the decision-making loop is what, you know, militaries want to do. They want to speed up things so that, you know, network-centric warfare is, you know, taking humans out of the loop. Well, that's, in my mind, the recipe for um, disaster. James, you've done a terrific job of explaining the extremely complex world of quantum technology to us today and highlighting some of its ramifications for society. Well, go to our website. It's, it's all there. It's all there. I will. That's at projectqsydney.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thanks, guys. That was Professor James Dedarian from the University of Sydney telling us about Project Q, which is exploring how quantum technology can and probably will change our lives completely over the coming decades. I hope you found this episode of Big Tech interesting. We're looking forward to having more conversations with people like James, who are really on the cutting edge of the future and where technology is going. Absolutely. And, and, and on, regarding quantum, there's just so many facets of how it could impact our world and our lives as the field of study continues to grow. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, Shohini Ghosh for contributing to today's episode. Thanks for listening. I'm David Scott, Editor-in-Chief of The Logic. And I'm Taylor Owen, CG Senior Fellow and Professor at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. Bye for now. The Big Tech Podcast is a partnership between the Center for International Governance Innovation, CG, and The Logic. CG is a Canadian nonpartisan think tank focused on international governance, economy, and law. The Logic is an award-winning digital publication reporting on the innovation economy. Big Tech is produced and edited by Trevor Hunsberger, and Kate Rosewell is our story producer. Visit bigtechpodcast.com for more information about the show. Thank you.